Hi, everybody. My name's Polly, and I'm an alcoholic. By God's grace, in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had a drink since April the 11th of 1977, and for that I am eternally grateful. And uh, thank you. And I send greetings from uh, my home group, which is Monday Night Seal Beach Speakers Meeting. And uh, I think it is absolutely the best meeting in the galaxy, and I hope you feel that way about your home group, because... Uh, I think it's real important for everybody to have a home group in Alcoholics Anonymous because I need to be somewhere every week. So if I'm not there, people know I'm not there. And uh, I think that's important. Um, I'm so grateful to be here this weekend. In fact, I'm just, I just feel overjoyed with, uh, with my life. And Eric, thank you so much for inviting Dave and I to come this weekend. And Dave's going to speak after me at 11 o'clock. And uh, I'd like for Dave to stand up and say hi to everybody. That's my husband, Dave. And I'd like for my son, James, to stand up so I, everybody can say hi. <laughs> uh, James and Kelly are here. And James and Kelly are members of the fellowships and... They have uh, Ryan and Chris here, which are my grandkids, and we tried desperately to keep them awake long enough so I could, you know, at least show them off to everybody. But I've been running around ever since they got here at about 2 o'clock, taking them in front of everybody I know. Cece, are they great? Are they great? It's just, and of course, only grandparents understand this. If you're a grandparent, you understand this. And James is so used to this now, I just run him around Alcoholics Anonymous, introducing him to everybody, and I said, I just want you to touch the winners. And so Beth is here tonight, and uh, I was running her around, because she's kind of a newcomer, she's eight months sober, and I just wanted her to touch the people that are here, because there's some... I have some heroes in this room tonight, and I just... I have, You have no idea how blessed you are with the people that are going to speak this weekend. It's just fabulous. Ken's going to speak tomorrow night, and Bonoy's going to speak in the morning, and John and Cindy, and these are like totally special people. And Keith this afternoon, and I got to meet Don today. I had not met him till last night, and he's just, just wonderful. And then on Sunday morning, you get to meet Karen, and uh, what a hoot she is. So you're just blessed with the people, and I feel so fortunate, and I look at, you know, people like Vinoy and Ken, and I live in Southern California, and we take this for granted, because, I mean, we have people like this come every Monday night to Seal Beach Speakers Meeting, and I think how blessed we are that we have this every Monday night, and, you know, we sit back, and should the secretary get somebody, you know, who's just, I would say, just not quite... Ken or Keith, and you know, everybody's sitting back there, well, who are they? What are they doing? I mean, you know, you get so spoiled in this program. I think Keith alluded to that this afternoon, how we take so many things for granted. And you're very blessed this weekend, because as far as I'm concerned, I just, I feel so privileged to be with these people. I just feel so privileged. It's, you see marriages and Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's just, you just love to see people like you, John and Cindy. It's just wonderful. And you watch you work this program together, and what you do in Montana is just, it's fabulous. It's just wonderful. Um, at any rate, that's, uh, I'm just grateful to be here. And I love my life today. I absolutely love my life. I love being sober. I just love my life. And at 20 years of sobriety, I am more active in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous than I've ever been. I sponsor more people than I've ever sponsored. And I go to more meetings than I've ever gone to. And this is going to probably sound really icky if you're pretty new. But the deal is, at 20 years of sobriety, I have so much more to lose. I have so much to lose today. That if I took a drink of alcohol, I have this life that sometimes I just have to pinch myself. It's so fabulous. As we were sitting in here this afternoon listening to Keith, and James kind of poked me on the shoulder, and he ran back to the boys. And then Chris, who's not quite two, yells out, Papa, and to Dave. And it's like, oh, my God. It's just like 
it doesn't get any better than that. And that's because I'm a sober grandmother and Dave's a sober grandfather. There wouldn't, there would be no way that James and Kelly would let their children be with me without you. There just isn't any way. I'm so grateful for that because I can't, I look at those little boys and think, if I had to take a drink of alcohol, I'd miss this. I'd miss this joy. The miracle of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> Tonight I'm going to talk a lot about alcoholism, a disease of perception, and Keith alluded to that all day today and this, our thinking and the way an alcoholic thinks. I'd, I just have to tell you this. If you haven't heard Wayne B. share, I thought I would just die the other day. He said, I heard him talk not long ago, and he said that his mother, they were sitting in church, and he says, now this is what I heard my mother say. Shut up. You're stupid. You don't know anything. What makes you act like that? And he said, would you like to really know what she said? Shh. <laughs> I understand that. That's the kind of head I have. I understand that. Because, you see, I have a disease of perception. And I believe that Clancy describes alcoholism, a disease of perception, better than anybody I know. And I know for sure, I don't know where Jerry went to. There he is over there. I know for sure Jerry's got that tape. And on that tape, Clancy talks about alcoholism, a disease of perception that my perception of reality is distorted. I have the kind of head that you can give me a set of information. It goes in, it takes a walk around, and what comes out doesn't even resemble what went in. I can still remember as a little girl my mother saying things to me like, Polly, wherever did you get that idea? Nobody said that to you. But I could have sworn they said that to me. So I came to the rooms with, of Alcoholics Anonymous with a lot of ideas that were twisted, as Keith was talking about today. I just had this twisted mind. And I'm one of these alcoholics that makes it to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous like Keith. I don't come from alcoholic parents. I come from parents who loved me. I come from parents who cared about me. I was an only child. I wasn't only loved, I was adored. I had parents, gosh, if I would have sat down and pitched a fit and said to my daddy, I want that big yellow moon out there, he would have tried to find a way to give it to me because he just wanted to give me everything. And if there's any abuse that was ever done to me, that abuse was I was simply loved too much because I was given everything. I was, not money, I didn't, they didn't have a lot of money but they had a lot of love, and I was given all that love. And I don't understand why, I, why I'm an alcoholic. I was going to share this. James talked at our meeting when he was out to visit in December, and we were sitting at dinner tonight, and I'll share this with you. And he said, sometimes, Mom, you blame yourself too much for what happened. He says, I know that I would have been an alcoholic, and I would have been like this. It doesn't matter which set of parents I had. He says, I believe this was just my way to God. And I believe that too. I believe that that's what it is. It's my way to God. But as a parent, when you see, when you look back and you see the things that you do to children, it's really painful. Because I can tell you right now, the kind of parent I was, they don't let have kids today. Because I was the kind of parent that... I was passed out on a sofa. My kids took care of themselves. They were totally and completely neglected. I didn't know what they were doing because I wasn't present to know what they were doing. And they don't let people have kids like that today. And I think that's a good thing. And I'm grateful to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I can have the kind of relationship that I have today with my children. But I believe that too because I'm an alcoholic and I had a set of parents who loved me. Yet I sit down and work with women who come from tragic childhoods. Absolutely tragic. And things happen to little girls that should never ever happen to little girls. But that's not my story. And those women talk about coming to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and how they hate themselves and how they feel so unloved 
and that there's not anybody there for them. And I have to sit down and say, you know, I came from parents who loved me, but that's how I felt when I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I felt like nobody loved me. I felt like I was somebody who was absolutely nothing. And I, I, I was so addicted to approval and the stuff you were talking about today, Keith. If you didn't, I would do things in order for you to validate my very existence. Everything I did was so you would tell me that I was okay and that what I was doing was okay. Because in and of myself, I absolutely felt I was nothing. And I was raised in a Baptist church. And, um, and I do this because it's not to, it's, it's not to talk about anything about churches because I really do believe what you say, Keith. We're not here to knock other organizations and I believe that. But I always say I'm also a recovering Southern Baptist. And the reason I say that is because I believe that's what I am. Even though I haven't gone back to that church, it's not because I'm angry with that church anymore. It's just for whatever reason, I found what I needed in Alcoholics Anonymous, and someday I may still find that I want to go back to that church. But I heard things that that church never said. And you come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they talk about God. And I didn't, I knew about God, but it certainly wasn't about the God you were talking about. This was about the God and the perception I had of God in that Baptist church. And I had this perception. Now, I don't know whatever happened to Jesus Loves Me and all of the things and all of the songs. I don't know what happened to that. Somehow or another, I didn't hear that. And I believe that the disease of alcoholism is the disease of negativity. Because, you know, somebody can give me ten compliments, and if they have one criticism, that's all I ever heard was the criticism, and that's what I hang on to. I can do 50,000 things right and one thing wrong, and that's the only thing I can think about is the thing I did wrong. It's a disease of negativity. What is What to me to live in a state of being abnormal is to be sober and to think positively. Those two things are abnormal for an alcoholic like me. Those are not, That's not normal for me to think positively or to be sober. What's normal for me is to be drunk, just absolutely living in the mire of depression and negativity. That's what's normal for me. But thanks to this program, I can have a different perception. But my perception of that Baptist church was, is I saw these preachers stand up behind the podium and they'd slam their fists on the podium and their faces would get red and their veins would stick out and they'd lean into the congregation and they'd say things like, if you've thought it, you've done it. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I was an alcoholic in the making and I thought a lot. So what happened was, I just started to take on these feelings is there's no way I'll ever, ever be good enough for God. God will never, ever love a person like me. And I brought those feelings of inadequacy and hopelessness to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the way I had felt about myself my whole life, even though I know today that that's not what people were telling me. But today I know that I have a disease called alcoholism. And in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells me that I am suffering from a spiritual malady. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that I am separated from the sunshine of the spirit. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that if I am suffering from a spiritual malady, nothing is enough. You cannot love me enough. You cannot give me enough. You cannot do enough. Because when there is spiritual illness, nothing is enough. I sponsor a woman, and I think she says it all. And when Paula talks, she says, I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous with a hole in my soul. And I believe that's what it was, a hole in my soul. I was so spiritually dead. And today, there are, I mean, it's not, I wish I could stand up here and tell you, with 20 years of sobriety, that I have a wonderful self-image, that I think really good of myself, 
and that I am at all times aware and feel it, not just, you know, self-knowledge. The big book says self-knowledge avails us nothing, but just this knowing that I am God's kid. I wish I could tell you I felt like that at all times. But what I can tell you is I feel that way more than I used to. I feel that way much, much more than I used to. That I know that I am God's kid. And with that, I know that I am cherished and loved. And that all of his kids are cherished and loved. And I'm so grateful when I have that feeling, and the big book talks about it, you know, there's no other feeling. That was the feeling we were always looking for. When we just have that warm feeling all over. When we know that God's will and our will are just lined up right together. There's just no feeling in the world like that. And I'm so grateful when I have those days. And I feel that way this weekend. I've just had so much anticipation about coming to this conference and being able to see people I love and being able to share it with my kids and my grandkids. And you know, it just doesn't get any better than that, that we get to have this life and we get to share this life. It just doesn't get any better. At 18 years old, I married an Air Force officer, and I just knew that I had found my knight in shining armor, and we were going to sail off into the sunset and live happily ever after. Well, I had married a SAC crew member, and this man was going to be gone, and he was going to be gone for years at a time, and I was going to have to learn to be responsible for myself. Now, I don't know. I know that there's one Southern woman here, and I don't know, but Benoit, I'm going to bet you feel this way. That, you know, I was born and raised in the South, and I just believe that when, that men were put on earth to take care of women. That's what, that's what you were supposed to do. And, you <laughs> don't believe that. <laughs> Me too, sweetie. Me too. <laughs> and that's what I thought he was gonna do. I thought I was gonna marry this man in a uniform, and we were gonna sail off into the sunset and live happily ever after. And that's not what happened. This man went off, you know, to do his thing. And here I'm this person who has never, ever wanted to take responsibility for myself. I've never wanted that. I'm one of these kind of people in Texas, you know, how we call it, puffing up. You know, you just puff up. And then, you you know, you just puff up and somebody wants to know what's wrong. Nothing. It becomes your responsibility to find out what's wrong with me. And then if you don't find out what's wrong with me and you don't make me happy, then you don't love me. And I love what Clancy says. Clancy says that we're people who have to be treated special just to feel average. And if you don't treat us special, then we feel rejected. I understand that. I've always been like that. I've always, I have never wanted to take responsibility for myself. I've never wanted to be responsible for my own happiness. I've wanted you to be responsible for my happiness. And I'm so grateful today and to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous because I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and you told me that I had to be responsible and accountable for my own actions past and present. And I'm really grateful for that because whether I didn't understand it. And if you're new tonight, you may not understand it. But what I've understood, being in this program for a while, freedom is the more accountable I am, the freer I am. The more responsibility I will accept, the freer I am. And for that, I'm so grateful. One of the things I want to do is I, I want to share my higher power with you. I, I didn't do that, and I usually do that kind of at the front of my talk, and, and I want to do that. Um, my name is Polly, and it's not Pauline or Paula. It's Polly. Now, if you're a little girl and your name is Polly, you're going to be teased a lot, and it's going to be things like Polly wants a cracker and Polly Wally doodle all the day. And I don't know about you, but I'm sensitive. And I do not like to be teased, and I do not like to be laughed at. But what I've learned in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is there's no negatives in God's world. It's only my perception that's negative, but everything has a positive result. And today I love having the name Polly, because I can go into meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and when somebody says Polly, I'm pretty sure they're talking to me. There's just not very many Pollys in AA. I didn't know that I had a disease called alcoholism, but I knew that I was a drunk and I knew that I was a lush. And I used to drive around the freeways in Dallas, Texas, and I used to pray to God to have heart disease or cancer or something 
because I knew I was dying and I just wanted to die of something respectable. And today I know that the disease of alcoholism is my greatest gift because if I didn't have the disease of alcoholism, I wouldn't qualify for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And everything I am or hope to be, I owe to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Seventeen years ago, I married Dave. Dave's last name is Pistol. My name is now Polly Pistol. <laughs> now, I hope you have that your higher power has a sense of humor because my God has a wonderful sense of humor because I will assure you, you cannot walk around on planet Earth with a name like Polly Pistol and not learn to lighten up. So I'm really grateful that God has given me this name. And that's, that is the kind of thing that just keeps happening because get a sense of humor around here. You're going to laugh so much tomorrow night when you listen to Ken. You'll laugh and you'll cry. And that's what this is all about, is the laughter. What a healer laughter is in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you see those signs, you know, thank God I laughed, but don't ever let me forget I cried. And that's true. And that's why we do things like I'm doing here tonight. I stand up and I share my experience, strength, and hope, because I don't ever want to forget where I came from. I don't ever want to forget what it was like before I found the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I don't ever, ever want to go there again. But anyway, I'm just going to tell you the feelings. I do not have this exciting drunk along. I was not out there doing all these fabulous things. I am one of these pathetic drinkers that pretty much stayed home, drank at home, passed out on the sofa with little kids running around and just died there. And that's pretty much my drinking. All my affairs and such things like that, I did sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was not going on prior to getting here. None of that stuff. It was just drink and pass out. And I had these feelings, and we were talking about it at lunch today, and it was an identification so much. And and I had these feelings, and I was this little 18-year-old girl, and I went into the military with all what my perception said, with all these very refined women who were educated and knew how to throw the perfect cocktail party and have the perfect dinner. And I was just this little kid who was uneducated with these feelings of total and complete inadequacy. I just, there's no way I'll be able to measure up to them. And when I would take a drink of alcohol, I'm not one of these alcoholics that remembers the first drink I ever took. I don't, I don't have that memory. I knew that I would take a drink of alcohol and I, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous defines it perfectly for me. I would begin to get that feeling of ease and comfort. Just that fear would go away. And just for a little while, I was enough. I was enough at that cocktail party, I could make it through that party. Just not be so stupid and be able to hear people say conversations and have these big long words and I didn't even know what they were talking about and just try to smile and act like I knew. But I felt so stupid and so inadequate. And if I would take a drink of alcohol, somehow those feelings would just melt away. And it worked for a very long time. And people who talk about, like Dave, he'll talk about having a drink, and he felt it. He, I mean, he felt that feeling the very first time he drank, and he just went after that feeling until he entered the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not my story. I saw a sign once in an Alano club, and that sign said, the chains of alcoholism were too soft to be felt until they were too strong to be broken. And that told my story. I did not understand what the problem was until I saw that. That people, there are people like me who just, who just drink in order to just have the fear go away just for a little while. Along about 1962, we're stationed in a place called Loring Air Force, uh, Air Force Base, Maine. It is very cold up there. I have two little boys. I have absolutely no tools in which to be a parent. I do not know how to be a parent. And these two little boys, I can't send them out to play. It's 50 below zero, and they're inside, and I'm having a nervous breakdown every 20 minutes. And I go to an Air Force doctor, 
and they say take these. And from 1962 until 1977, I drank alcohol, and I took Librium and Valium and Secondol and Nemetol. And I'm here to tell you, if you take those kind of drugs and you drink alcohol, you are not an active alcoholic. And that's why... <laughs> That's why I call myself a couch potato alcoholic. And uh, I, t I take this from James's story. He didn't tell this the other night, but uh, a few times I've heard him talk, he has told his story. And James talks about being a little boy. And you see, I believe that the disease of alcoholism is a family disease and that anybody who lives with the disease of alcoholism is affected. And I believe that the disease of alcoholism absolutely traumatizes children. And a lot of times, you know, we forget what we do to our children or are unwilling to take responsibility for what this disease does to our children. And I think about, as James talked about at that time, of walking back and forth in front of a sofa and his mother was passed out, but he didn't know she was passed out. And his father was gone and he was certain that his mother was dead. And that little boy was gripped with terror. And that's the disease of alcoholism. That's what the disease of alcoholism does to little children. I'm so grateful to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and what you have given me. Because what you allowed me to do is through the steps that Keith so beautifully described today, is that you gave me the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you allowed me to be able to sit down with my sons and be able to tell them how sorry I am that I am a child abuser and how sorry I am that those things happened to you. And what was really neat is, is that I got to sit and let them tell me what it was like to have me for a mother. And see, what you allowed me to do is you allowed me to listen. Because all those years when those little boys were little, I could not listen. I could not hear their pain. But because of this program, you have allowed me to listen and to hear when they speak. And for that, I am so grateful. If I never got anything else from this program, that would have been enough. Because that process that we do in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous produces a bond that is beyond anything that I have ever known. The relationship that I have today with my sons is greater than I ever thought it would be. The miracle of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I entered the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous the first time through a car wreck in Irving, Texas. And I was taken to a treatment center in Euless, Texas. And this was not any fancy jitter joint. This was a county detox. And um, I went there and I... I had no idea what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was about. I didn't know any alcoholics. I didn't know anything about it. I had seen the days of wine and roses and I'll cry tomorrow and that was about all I knew about alcoholism. And I certainly did not think I was that kind of alcoholic. And I entered this treatment center because I had had a car wreck and my husband asked me to go there. And I went there and I loved Alcoholics Anonymous, and they started to take us to a lot of meetings. But the thing about it was, is there was just something down deep inside of me that said, Polly, people like you just don't become alcoholic. And I could not really believe where the book says, had to admit to our innermost self that I was really alcoholic. I just couldn't do it. And besides that, I did this thing. I had a jitter house romance, you know, where sick falls in love with sick and you walk off into happy destiny. I just wanted somebody. I just knew that my problem was if you just loved me enough, I'd be okay. The problem was is I was so unloved. I just knew that's what it was. But you see, the reality is, is I have always been loved. I was loved and adored by my parents. My ex-husband is a wonderful man. He loved and adored me too. My children loved me. I was always loved. The person who never loved me was me. I was the only person who did not love me. And I didn't know that until I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was my disease of perception. But when I was so spiritually ill, 
I could not feel the feelings of love. And I just knew that what I was trying to do was get it from out here. If you'll just love me enough, I'll feel okay. And what happened was is I stayed sober for 58 days, and then I ended up being 12-step back into that treatment center. And I was brought in there more dead than alive, and I had been beaten up at numerous and sundry other things. And I'd reached that place in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that talks about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Because now I knew what the problem was. The problem was sobriety. I cannot live inside my own skin without alcohol. I knew that there was no way that I could live sober because I couldn't live sober with the kind of mother I'd become and the kind of daughter I'd become and the kind of wife I'd become. And I've heard in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that women hate what they've done, what men hate what they've done, and women hate what they have become. And I hated what I had become, and I knew that there was no way I could live sober. And without ever knowing it, I had just defined the disease of alcoholism. I love on that tape that I was telling you about. Clancy has that tape, this alcoholism, a disease of perception. He also talks about the disease of alcoholism. And he talks about the disease of alcoholism has nothing to do with drinking. It's not about drinking. I haven't had a drink or any other kind of funny pill in almost 21 years. And I need to come to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous as much as or more than I have ever needed to come to. Because I have a disease called alcoholism. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that that disease rests in the mind. And that's what the problem is. And that alcohol was but a symptom. I have to get down to the causes and conditions. And I need to suit up and show up for meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because my perception of reality is distorted. And I need you to keep me in touch with reality. And without you, I don't have a clue what the truth is. And you see, back then, without ever knowing it, I knew what the problem was. The problem was sobriety. I could not live sober. And I'm here to tell you today that I could not live sober without this program. I need something to take away the madness. There's just something that goes on inside of me that I have to have this program so desperately to take away the madness. Because given any any moment, I can have this thinking that I'm just sure that, you know, as Keith was taught me, be fired from my job, nobody's going to love me, everybody's going to leave me, all of this stuff. It can start in a heartbeat. And I need this program, and I need you, so that you can tell me I'm wrong. I need to know that I'm wrong, that that's not what's going on. And that's the disease of alcoholism. And I need to come to these meetings. Because my head, this head is out to get this body every day. Every day, my head is out to get this body. At any rate, I just knew that I couldn't live sober. So I left that treatment center and I got a bottle of vodka and I got a bottle of Valium and I checked into a motel. And by God's grace, because I believe that God sends us Eskimos or angels I love to go to girl, I went to girl talk and learned, they, they do everything with angels. And I just love that. And so I say, a lot of times we talk about Eskimos are angels. But I believe some way, somehow, an Eskimo or an angel brings us to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had that opportunity. And, um, I had taken this, I had taken this, I had gotten into this room of this motel with this vodka and these pills. And I absolutely wanted to die. And what happened was, is that a friend of mine who knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism, but she loved me, she said something came over her that day. And she drove around until she found my car parked outside this motel. And I hadn't shut the door all the way, and she pushed it open. And on April the 8th of 1977, I was pronounced dead on arrival. Needless to say, that didn't take, because I'm standing here tonight. But I believe that I am a product of divine intervention. I believe that it is only by God's grace and God's love that I'm here tonight. And it took me a very long time in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous to know that. I walked around in these rooms for, for a very long time without realizing that I walked in grace. Because I am a person who finally ended up in a, 12, in a treatment center where we did the first five steps. And... Uh, 
One of the things that always happens to an alcoholic when they get sober is our opinions return. <laughs> and um, so I'm going to share you a strong opinion and let you know that the directions are in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that opinion is, is that I entered this treatment center that was a five-step treatment center. And I would take nothing for having gone to that treatment center. But the opinion is, is that I had thought for a very long time that I had done a fifth step, a fourth and fifth step. And thank God, along about three or four years of sobriety, Dave and I had gotten married and moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I got this lady to sponsor me. And I just said, I don't have this feeling of God. For all these times, and I said, I'm walking around in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous with this secret. You know, I'm talking the talk, but I don't, I just know that I don't have that kind of feeling about God that those people have. And she says, but Polly, if you've worked the steps, then you've taken the necessary action to have a spiritual awakening and you would have that feeling. And I said, but I have. And she says, well, why don't you tell me about it? And so I began to tell her, you know, what I had done in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I got to the fourth step, I told her this fourth step I had taken in this treatment center. And she said, Polly, that makes a wonderful novel, but it does nothing for inventory. I just have a very strong opinion about those types of inventories. These I was born inventories. These autobiographies. I just have a very strong opinion about that because what happens is, is the book talks about having three inventories. The resentment inventory, the sex inventory, and the fear inventory. And I'm supposed to put those in four columns. And in the resentment inventory, I need to understand what my part is in it. And if I'm doing an autobiography, I can't find my part. And if in the fear inventory, if I'm not doing the columns, I don't know what I should do instead of in order to get rid of that fear. And if I'm doing the sex inventory, then I don't understand what I've done to create harm in another person's life if I haven't done the inventory. And it was at that time that I began to take an inventory. And the magic happened to me because what happened was is I became accountable for my actions. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says most of my problems are of my own making. And in the 10th step, in the 12 and 12, it says it is a spiritual axiom. When anything disturbs me, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with me. And today I know when, you know, that, you know, that thing that you get just about right here and it just, it just gnaws and gnaws and gnaws. I always know that it's not about you and it's not about it, it's about me. And I need to inventory right then and find out what's going on with me. What it is that I need to do to be accountable at that point in time. Because it's not about what somebody else is doing. There's something wrong with me. And I'm so grateful. But because of that action, today I know that I walk in grace. That all of us have been given the gift of grace. We walk into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and we're given the gift. And it's a total gift unearned. It's nothing that we did to earn this gift. It is a free gift from God. The very, very sad thing is, is that most people who walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous give it back. In our daily reflection, there's a reading in there, and it says that sobriety is God's gift to me. What I do with my sobriety is my gift back to God. And I understand the the feelings that Keith had today and how important it is for me to be able to give back to this program that was so freely given to me. And I'm so grateful that I got to go to that treatment center. I'm so grateful that April the 11th is the last time I've had a drink. I'm so grateful for a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that great events will come to pass. That's the great fact for us all. And I want to share with you my great events. When I was three years sober, I married another member of this fellowship. And uh, Dave and I had been friends for a long time. In fact, we say if we'd have known we were going to get married, we'd have never told each other the things we told each other. <clears throat> and this has been a great marriage. And Dave and I didn't know anything about having how to have a marriage. We both knew how to take a hostage, but neither one of us knew how to have a marriage. 
And one of the things that I think is so important is to find some heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. Find some heroes and go do what they do. And Ellen Aldridge and Red were, Ellen was my sponsor at one time and, uh, and Red has since died and Ellen is, is very ill with Alzheimer's. But this was two alcoholics hooked together and what they did is they, they kept doing the 12 step deal and when Red died they'd been married for 32 years. And they had done the deal right up until the day he died. And they carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wanted what they had. So I need to do what they do. And then we have this beautiful couple that lived in Dallas, Albert and Sally Myers. And Albert died not too long ago. And and uh, I'm also one of these alcoholics who's a very grateful member of Al-Anon. And Sally was my Al-Anon sponsor. And she's, she's like a mom to me. And I'd go to Texas, and uh, if I'd call, and, and Albert would always get on the phone and say, Sally, your daughter's on the phone. And get that love. And I saw an almost 50-year marriage, and I saw the way they courted each other right up until the day Albert died. They loved each other, and they courted each other. And I want what they have. I wanted that. And then there's this couple down in Omaha that began to talk about working the traditions in your relationship. What a phenomenon. We talk about the steps, and in our meetings in California, we say the traditions are to the group as the steps are to the individual. And we begin to realize that Bob, that Doc, that Bill gave us the blueprint for relationships. I don't care if it's a relationship with a love, with, uh, your spouse, or lover, or child, or employer, or employee. The blueprint has been given to us in the traditions. He gave those to us so that we know how to get along. And I'm one of these people that starts pounding the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous about the traditions to believe that the traditions are more important than the steps. And I love what I hear from old-timers because they say, if you know, if I don't work the steps, I get drunk. One person. If we don't uphold the traditions, we lose AA. And it's always been about the group, the whole. And I truly believe that the traditions are is the thing that holds us together. The traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. For a really long time, it looked like Dave and I had the Midas touch. You know, it seemed like, and he, the kids were getting, the kids were all getting better. James had come into the program, and. Russ quit kill, trying to kill himself, and things were, you know, it was just like life was getting good, and and uh, the money was coming in. It seemed like we'd turn around, and, you know, I would be getting a promotion or another job, and Dave was. And I mean, it looked, I mean, things were great, and it just looked like we had the Midas touch. And about five years ago, we got this huge blow, and Dave lost his job. This corporation decided they no longer needed you know, that whole middle management, and so away it went. And we didn't realize for a while that the world was just not looking for a 57-year-old computer scientist. And uh, things were going to get rough if Dave didn't get a job soon, and we were going to lose our house, and things were getting rougher by the minute. And what I've learned through that whole experience is, is I love, I'm going to steal this from Keith, because Keith said that, he came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and Sandy said, your receiver is broken. And I was 16 years sober and my receiver was broken. It was real broken. You know, it's really okay if I'm the one that's in the driver's seat. If I'm the one that's doing all the telling. If I'm leading all the groups. And it's really great if we're going out to dinner and I'm the one paying. But then what, ha- what has to happen is, is that people would call up on the phone and say, you know, uh, we want you guys to go out to dinner and don't even start to give us an excuse because we're paying. Ugh. It's so humiliating. And what I learned was is that I learned to receive your love at 16 years of sobriety. I'm a really slow learner. I'm a very slow learner. And what I also realized is that the only thing that I lost through that whole thing was a whole boatload of load of pride. Because, you see, I had my fist at God. And I had some really confused ideas about Alcoholics Anonymous. Because, you know, I, I would hear people stand up behind the podium and they'd give this rags-to-riches story. And it seemed like, what am I doing wrong if this is happening in my life? 
What step am I not working? What's going wrong? Aren't I being rewarded for being sober and have my fist at God? Don't you see how many people I sponsor? Don't you see how much service I am in Alcoholics Anonymous? And here I was with this twisted mind one more time that just because I'm sober, I'm supposed to get all this stuff. I am sober to suit up and show up for life. And I never could do life. And nothing was unusual. I mean, our whole neighborhood was up for sale. Now, these people weren't in Alcoholics Anonymous, but they were, by God, losing their houses, too. I mean, the whole neighborhood. And there was 500 people that lost their job the very same time that Dave did. So it wasn't that God singled me out. This was just life. But what you have given me the opportunity to do is to live life. And I'll tell you something. There's sobriety after bankruptcy. There's sobriety after foreclosure. There's sobriety after all that stuff. And what happens is, is somebody comes into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You ever see that newcomer come in whining about all that stuff? Come on, baby. Sit down by me. Been there, done that. You can stay sober and go through all that. And I'll guarantee you, the very worst thing that happened to me, and maybe it'll be the very worst thing that'll happen to you, is total and complete humiliation. And I don't know what your seventh step in the 12 and 12 says, but it says that most humility is usually followed by a lot of humiliation. Now, I don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm so spiritual that I'd rather be poor than rich. I don't want anybody to misunderstand that. What I'd just like to say tonight is, is that finally, and this is a big deal, finally, after 20 years of sobriety, I'm ready to suit up and show up and live my life and play the cards that were dealt me and do whatever comes my way and know that God is not treating me any differently. And the neat thing about it is, is to have joy and happiness in my heart for the people who have more and get more than me. And that's a miracle. Because you see, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm selfish and self-centered. And I've always got that feeling, but what about me? When is this going to happen for me? And to be free of that is absolutely such a freedom and a gift. And I'm so grateful that I don't have that feeling anymore about you have it and I don't. And the joy that I feel because you have it. Now that was a long time coming. And it hasn't been there very long. But I'm so grateful because I don't believe that anything rots the soul worse than jealousy and envy. I don't believe that there's any worse soul rotter. And I'm so grateful that that's free. I want to tell you quickly about my sons. When I was six and a half years, well, when I came into the program, I was completely aware that uh, my son was a full-blown drug addict. And... uh Boy, you should have seen me do it all the wrong ways. <laughs> I used to tell James I had a sponsor picked out for him, and I did. And, <laughs> and do all this stuff to try to get James sober. And um, when I was six and a half years sober, he called me on the phone and he said, Mom, I want what you have. And six and a half years before, I was supposed to attend a function at his school. And James says, don't you dare show up at my school because I am ashamed of you. And six and a half years later, he wants what I have. And that is absolutely a great event that's come to pass. And on January the 3rd, James celebrated 14 years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's a great event that's come to pass. My oldest son is one of our Al-Anons. I'd love to stand up here tonight and tell you that Russ is in Al-Anon. He works this fabulous program. But nada. It's not happening. But the miracle is, is this is a kid that always wanted to take his life. 
and Cindy and I were talking about that and with the ADD and all the stuff. I mean, you talk about intense. Now, it's pretty intense today, but it's not as, as intense as it was. But it's still pretty intense. And Russ was constantly trying to take his life. Now, I understand that. I understand about depression. I am a person that has suffered severe depression in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a person that has wanted, I wanted to take my own life until I was eight years sober. That was a solution for me, those feelings of hopelessness. And something I read, and this is AA-approved literature, was in The Language of the Heart. And in there, Bill wrote a letter, and it's the last letter to the grapevine. And it's called Emotional Sobriety, Our Next Frontier. And what I learned was, is how many dependencies I had. Dependencies on approval. Dependencies on you approving of the kind of AA program I worked. Dependencies on AA. These constant dependencies. And what I had to realize, that if I was going to be freed from any of that, those feelings of hopelessness that I had to have total and complete dependency on God. That that's where my dependency had to be. And the only way that Bill knew how to have that complete dependency on God was constantly working with others. And I know for me that that's my solution. And I'm grateful because I haven't had those feelings. I've been freed of those feelings. But I understood my son's desperation. I understood what it was like to hurt so bad emotionally that you'd want to hurt yourself physically. I understood that because I had done that. And I was doing something just like I'm doing tonight, except I was going to talk in the morning. And uh, that Friday night, my daughter-in-law called me and she said that my son was in the hospital. He had put a pair of scissors in his stomach. And I got up to talk the next morning, and I was so torn down. And this man came up to me after I got through talking, and he said, Young lady, you and I need to talk. And we need to get into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we would need to read the chapter to the agnostic. And you need to know that God either is or he isn't. He is either all things or he's nothing. And that Russ is God's kid, and what God does with his kids is none of your business. And I was able to release Russ. Now, I don't know. I had gone to many AA meetings. Thank God for Al-Anon and this man because I would they would say, turn him over, turn him over. And what I found out is they didn't know how to turn him over any more than I knew how to turn him over. So, But I can guarantee you where they know how to turn him over, and that's in Al-Anon. They know how to turn you over <laughs> in Al-Anon, and they've got the blueprint for it. And I'm so grateful for the gifts that I've found in this program because I was able to release my son. Russ hasn't tried to hurt himself in nine years. And that is absolutely a great event that's come to pass. And we have this little granddaughter, Katie. And uh, she is so adorable. And every time I look at Katie, I thank God that nothing happened to Russ. Because, see, if Russ had had his way, we wouldn't have Katie. Great event. I never understand what God's plan is. But if I'll just sit around and wait for the results, it is absolutely incredible. A great event came to pass on May the 23rd, 1993. And he is absolutely the cutest little boy. And those of you who've seen him today, now if you were at Bill W.'s big family reunion in San Diego, Ryan was the main event. He is absolutely the... And of course people would come up to him, he's got this head full of curly hair. And when he was littler, he had more curly hair. And they'd come up and they'd say, oh, Polly, he looks just like you. And you know, I'm just like going crazy because I'm so excited. And I just, I've never, ever known that I could feel the way I felt about that little boy. But you know, I had to go through a bunch of stuff, and you were talking about that today, and, and you shared your soul about that. And I had that problem, because you see, I lived in California, and he lives here in uh, Evanston, Illinois, and and Ryan would see me, and he wouldn't want to be around me, but he'd see his other grandmother, and he wanted to be around her, and and God, I had a, this horrible resentment, you know, he doesn't love me and he doesn't want to be with me and all that stuff that just eats us up. And I, I did an inventory and it wasn't about that I wanted Ryan to love me. I wanted Ryan to love me best. <laughs> 
And see what I'm grateful for today is that so many people love Ryan. That's the miracle. That he's all these people that treasure this little boy. When Ryan was about a year and a half old, we got some devastating news. We found out that Ryan was deaf. And I mean, I really had my fist at God. How can this be happening? Don't you see how much service I am in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? Don't you see how many people I sponsor? James and Kelly are sober. Don't you see what's happening? How can you be doing this to us, God? And one more time, my perception of reality was distorted. I had no idea what kind of gift we were about to be given. Because you see, because of this little boy, this family has absolutely changed. Because you see, James comes from a family that was ripped apart by a disease called alcoholism. And Kelly comes from a family that was ripped apart by a disease called alcoholism. But because of this little boy, this family has come together. Because you see, the only way we're going to communicate with this little boy is if we learn to sign. Because you see, Ryan hasn't heard sound. And he has to learn by sign language. And what a miracle that that has been. The healing that this little boy has given us. And the joy that he has. And I'll tell you the thing that you've done that's the greatest gift of all. Is that when there is a child that has special needs, it is very tiring. And it takes a lot from parents. And James and Kelly are the very best parents I have ever seen. It's never too much. It never costs too much. It's never too long. And that's because of a program called Alcoholics Anonymous that you gave these kids that gift of being able to parent. And I will guarantee you, I don't know about Kelly, but I will guarantee you that James never learned any of his parenting skills from me. Those are strictly from coming to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous and falling in love with the God that he was introduced to here. The same God that I was introduced to here. That's the miracle. That's the great event that's come to pass. <clears throat> Ryan, we have another little boy named Chris. And uh, there's not anybody in this family that you can even begin to tell that if it weren't for Ryan's deafness, we wouldn't have Chris. Because you see, because Kelly had had a child that had had a birth defect, they wanted to, they wanted to run a test on her. And uh, when they ran the test on her, they found out that she was in the process of aborting the child she carried. And they would have been on a plane in two days to California, and probably she would have not continued to carry the pregnancy. But because of it, she had a surgery, and they put her to bed for five months. And now we have Chris. And you can't tell this family that if it weren't for Ryan, Ryan has truly saved his brother's life. We wouldn't have Chris. And you see, the deal was that God was always performing these miracles. God has performed these kind of miracles in my life all of my life. The difference is, is that I never, ever could see the miracle. Not to, a couple, shortly after Ryan, we'd been through a couple of courses. So I imagine Ryan was about two and a half years old at that time. And Dave and I had been to some sign language classes. And I was uh, invited up to speak at a meeting in Rancho Cucamonga. And I went up there with this attitude. I don't know if any of you have had this attitude. I'm going to drive an hour all the way to Rancho Cucamonga. I'm going to choke to death on the smoke. And there probably will be ten people there on a Wednesday night. And I will get home at 11.30. And then I'll have to get up at 5. What an order. I cannot go through with this. <laughs> but what I've learned to do in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is take actions contrary to the way I feel. And I am totally in agreement with Keith. It's not about how I feel. It's about what I do. Because had I done what I felt like doing, I would have never been at that meeting. And I went to that meeting that night and do what I usually do. I had a friend once tell me I go to AA meetings like I used to go to cocktail parties. <laughs> and I got my cup of coffee and I was running around talking to everybody. And the secretary runs up to me 
And he says, Polly, I don't know what we're going to do. There's a lady here. She's four days sober. She can't read lips, and she's deaf. And I said, it's okay. I sign a little. And I sat down at a table, and I was very slow, and I was very new, and I was very bad, but she didn't care. And I carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to this lady. Two weeks ago, I was asked to go speak at that same meeting. And that's a part of my story today. Because you see, because of Ryan, I know about a whole community of people I never knew about before. And I'm sensitive to what goes on in that with the people who are deaf. And I never understood that until we had Ryan. And I was speaking at that meeting that night and Mike, who is the secretary, came up to me and he says, gosh, I didn't know you remembered that stuff, that you remembered that. And I said, remember it, it's changed my life. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that that lady is still sober. And she talks about you doing that all the time. You never know what God has in store. And if nobody's told you tonight that you make a difference, please let me tell you that you make a difference. That you make a difference and how we behave in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is a responsibility. Because you see, this is a program of attraction, not promotion. And I never know who's watching. My behavior, when I leave, it's easy for us to be great in here. It's when we walk outside in the 12 steps as we practice these principles in all our affairs. I think it's very important that I learn to keep my opinions to myself. That I don't come in here and down other 12-step programs or other things. It's really important to me that I don't stand behind a podium or anywhere else and practice medicine without a degree. It's just real important to me that I remain principled in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and that what I do is I carry a message of sobriety because I make a difference, because I never, ever know who's watching. And I want to share one little story about that. My granddaughter was having her first birthday. And Dave and I were getting ready to drive up to San Luis Obispo, and you don't know where that is, but it's about a four-hour drive, and and we were, I was going to stop by the subway and get this long sandwich, and, you know, I was waiting to do that, and I was standing there moving from one foot to the other because this lady was talking and yakking and jabbering, and didn't she know who I was, and then I'm really in a hurry, and I needed to get out, and I wanted to act differently than I acted. I wanted to tear her eyes out. Say, won't you hurry up? I'm in a hurry. You know, get on with it. So finally, she comes over to me, and I behaved as I was taught to behave in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was, you know, polite and nice, like you've taught me how to be, and pretty soon she asked, and she says, your name? And I said, Polly Pistol, and she drops her pencil. Oh, my! She says, I heard you talk at woman to woman. Now, wouldn't it have been wonderful if I had acted like I felt? Wouldn't that have been a wonderful example of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous? We never, ever know. It's real important that I practice this program because we never, ever know who's watching. I get on my soapbox about this program, about cherishing the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and to keeping this program pure and keeping us a singleness of purpose because I want the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to be just like it was for me 20 years ago. I want it to be just like it was for James 14 years ago because, you see, I think my little grandson Ryan may need you. And I'm going to steal this from James's story, but um, when uh, we take little boys, when they take babies and they have to run tests on them, they have to put them to sleep. So we took James to have, I mean James, we took Ryan to have these tests done and they gave him the medication and nothing happened. And they gave him the medication again and nothing happened. And finally gave him the medication and he went to sleep. And James came too doing this. That's more in sign language. <laughs> Treasure this program. Treasure this program is if your very life depended on it, because it does. Great events will come to pass. If you'd have told me to make a list of all the things that I wanted in sobriety, I'd have never had the nerve to ask God to give me the things that he's given me. I'd never had the nerve to ask God to give me a husband like Dave, 
friends like you. I'd have never had the nerve. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous has left, left me, I would have settled for so much less. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, left to my own devices, I'll self-destruct. The very best I could do for me was to get me pronounced dead on arrival. But thanks to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I am all the things I ever wanted to be. You have absolutely breathed life into me. I am a woman who has loved one man with all her heart for 17 years, and I never knew I could do that. I am a woman who's self-supporting through my own contribution, and I didn't know that I could do that. I am someone who's dependable. If you ask me to do something, I do it, and you can count on it. And you taught me to do that in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the place that I'd always felt like a failure was that as a mom. Because, you see, I could see what this disease had done to my son. And a few years ago, my son said to me, Mom, you are the mom we always wanted you to be. And that's a great event that's come to pass. Tonight, before I got up here to talk, James both said it to me and he signed it to me. And he said, Mom, you be sure and tell all those people that your son James loves you. And that's a great event that's come to pass. When I was in Center Hospital, one of the counselors used to start every day with a prayer. And I end my AA talks with it because it's what this program means to me. I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. I sought my brother, and I found all three. God bless. I love you.